0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, June 27th at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. This is the last week of our journey through Paul's second letter to Timothy. It's been a, it's been a really good journey uh, for me. If I'm really honest, um, I'm sad to see it go. Um, I I pray that our time in 2 Timothy together has served you well if you've been with us through this series. I know it has, it's become a catalyst for some significant reflection in our own house for the way that we understand various circumstances and difficulties that we have gone through and have been called to endure as well as Significant reflection on how we live the days that God has allotted to us. Well, what's that actually look like? Um, And as we come to the end of Second Timothy this morning, the sermon is going to be a little bit different in how we approach it. um, But I'm having to wrestle with the fact I'm going to miss Paul. Um, Sometimes, as a as a teacher, uh, you know, you do this week in and week out, and you spend time in God's word, not just to teach, but in, for your own heart and your own life. And in different circumstances and seasons, different portions of God's word attach to you in different ways. And um, this has been one of those letters that has attached itself to my heart in a unique way. I mean, when I love all of God's word. I love teaching it all. As Paul has reminded us, it's all profitable, but sometimes certain portions just get with you, um, and as we've journeyed through this letter, I very much felt a bit like Timothy or like one of those members of that early church in Ephesus. And as I've read the letter and studied the letter and prepared to talk about the letter, and even in mornings like this when I talk, I'm going to have a hard time getting through it at some point because I've begun to feel like I hear Paul's voice. I mean, this is his last words. This is it. And, and i felt the, the weight of his writing differently in this. Um, And so I hope and pray for you that God has used this time to serve you well. And as much as I'm going to miss Paul and miss his voice, I very much feel like there are certain things of Paul that I'm going to hear over and over for the rest of my days. We talk about reading the Bible like a human around here sometimes. and, And one of the things that has happened for me in this journey is I have, a, I have a voice for Paul in my head. I have an idea of what I think at least Paul sounds like to me, and I'm going to hear him. I feel like there's part of that voice that's going to stick. You know, you have voices in your life that remain with you through your days, and Lord willing, they're good voices. And I have a voice, my high school coach, he, he's still in my head to this day. Um, I, I was in high school in Atlanta, Georgia, and he was born and bred Jersey guy uh, and sounded every bit like it. And my senior year in preseason, we were doing portions of our conditioning test, and part of that test was a mile and a half run, so it's six laps around the track. And as we were coming around the last corner on that sixth lap for me, you know, you start in the middle of the straightaway and you do six laps around. I was coming to the last corner, and he stepped off the side into the track, came along running on my side and started yelling at me with this thick Jersey accent. I kept saying, to the shack, Robbie Green. And he's the only one of two people that can call me Robbie. But at the end of the straightaway was the, you know, the snack, snack bar for the football field right there. And the race ended in the middle. But he was yelling at me and screaming at me to make it all the way to the end of the shack. I didn't get the luxury to slow down before the end. I didn't get the luxury to stop at the end of the line. It was all the way past it. And I still hear his voice in my head to this day when I go through difficult things, or really when I, like Timothy, probably have a temptation to quit on a lot of things. I hear this voice, his thick Jersey accent, to the shack, Robbie Green, don't you quit, all the way. And I remember this voice that, compelled me towards something that in and of myself, I, I wouldn't have done, really, in that moment, in that day, because I didn't have to. I could have stopped. And I feel like I'm going to have Paul's voice in my head. In particular, in the closing portions of this letter, in chapter 4, verse 5, I'm, in this little voice, I'm going to hear Paul for the rest of my days saying, stay sober-minded. And he doesn't sound like my coach. He doesn't have a Jersey accent, but Stay sober minded. Don't panic. Keep your head clear. Remember, in these days, there are going to be seasons of difficulty. And that was a very heavy word, if you remember. There's going to be very hard times in these days. Don't lose your head. Don't be chicken little. When people start to slander you, when people start to reject you, when people reject the gospel, when people you have loved and you have walked with begin to love the present world like Demas more than the, they love God, don't, don't give in, don't quit, don't panic. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. Stay sober-minded. And I feel like I'm going to hear him say, endure hardship. Don't run from it. Don't try to sidestep it. Find a way around it. Don't fall prey to the temptation to empty the gospel of its power by trying to make it more palatable to people who might oppose you. And when they oppose you, remember they're opposing Christ. And don't get bitter. And don't quit. Remember what Paul said, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I mean, really, what, what can the worst of the hardship and the endurance really do to you? I mean, the worst thing you could ever experience is hell itself. Eternal separation from the presence of God under the condemnation of the law. But you're in Christ. You've been crucified with Him. That means the worst thing that could have ever possibly happened to you has already happened. And it happened in Christ. You can't be tried again for that. There is no double jeopardy with the gospel. What can it really do to you? Endure the hardship. And while you do it, do the work of an evangelist. Because all around you are people who are caught in the deceptive lies of the enemy. The lies that make the promises of sin sound glorious while the consequences of sin sound minimal. And as people continually give themselves into it, you know what happens? Once he gets them to bite, he then never stops accusing them of their guilt. And they're caught. So do the work of an evangelist. Preach this gospel in season and out of season. Whether you feel like it or not. Preach this gospel of the grace of God through Christ and do it with all patience. You remember what that means, right? It means recognizing that as you do it, you may very well not see anything actually happening. It may not be observable to you at all what God is doing in their heart. As one writer said, sometimes it will look as though you're failing. And failing is not the way of the American hero, but it is the way of the disciple. So do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Keep at it. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get thrown off the course, remember, by all the foolish arguments, all all the irrelevant babble. The immaturity of the sin in your own heart that wants to jump into those things just to prove yourself right because you love the argument. Don't get sidetracked by all these things. There's no direct call of God from you to jump into every argument going on around you. Fulfill your ministry. Russell Moore, who who spent his career for the last nearly eight years writing on issues of public policy and culture for the church, He said that our cultural and moral policy debates are very important. But if our passions demonstrate that these things are more important to us or are more central to our identity, then we veered into a place we should not go. This is why North American Christianity is so sick and weak and doesn't even know it. He said we're bored by what the Bible reveals as truly mysterious and glorious And we're red in the face about what hardly matters in the broad sweep of eternity. Why? Because we're clamoring for the kind of power that the world recognizes while ignoring the very power of God that comes through Christ and Him crucified. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get off the course. Fulfill your ministry as the missionary Hero, Count Zinzendorf, you might be familiar with him because of his name, so famously said, Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's it. Four steps to this dance that I think I'm going to hear Paul in my head for the rest of my days saying. Four steps stay sober minded, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. All of them, though, require one essential thing, and that's courage. It's courage. Kent Hughes, who was a pastor for decades in Chicago, Illinois, he said that this idea of courage, and very specifically this word courage, is a uniquely Jesus thing. And he says that because only Jesus uses this word in the New Testament, and he only uses it five times. And I didn't believe him when I read that. I was like, I've got to go look that up because someone else had to use that word. Not just Jesus, but sure enough, he was right. Five times in the New Testament, only Jesus uses the word courage. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, if you're familiar with the story of the paralytic man, it was Jesus who looked at him And your Bible is going to say in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus looks at him and says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. But in our English translations, take heart translates one word in the Greek, courage. Jesus literally looks at him in the eyes and says, courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Later in Matthew chapter 9, he looks at the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, unable to find any relief And he looks her in the eyes and he says, courage, daughter, your faith has healed you. Later to his frightened disciples who were out on the sea when a storm began to brew and they feared for their own life in the boat and they see this man striding across the waves in the wind. It was Jesus who looked at those disciples and said, courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. And it's to those same disciples the night that Jesus would be betrayed and crucified that in the upper room, he looked them again in the eye. And he said, courage, I've overcome the world. It's courage, it's necessary for endurance and sober-mindedness and the work of evangelism and fulfilling our calling. It's a uniquely Jesus thing. And he said it five times, and I've only told you about four. Because the fifth one brings us to the author of this letter we've been studying. And if you were with us when we began this journey through 2 Timothy, you might remember that we started by kind of looking back at Paul's days and travels and relationship with Timothy. That got him to the point of writing this letter to Timothy now, who was leading the church in Ephesus. And so, I only thought it was right at the very end that we now go back and take another journey together, but this time not through Paul's relationship with Timothy, but looking at Paul's journey that's landed him in this prison cell in particular and the means that God has used to cultivate the kind of courage to persevere with joy that we see in Paul and that's available to all of us so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be there in just a second. If you want to grab one of the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 930. And as you're turning there, remember, maybe you, maybe you remember this, and if you're not familiar with the names that we're using, Paul and Timothy and all this stuff, the Apostle Paul was at one time in his day one of the most famous, if not the most famous, religious leader in his day. He outdid all of his peers not just in his knowledge, but in his zeal. And then one fateful day, this man, he left the city of Jerusalem and charged down the road with a group of soldiers and approval letters from the rulers themselves to go to Damascus where he would continue his mission of imprisoning and abusing followers of the way, followers of Jesus. But it was on that road, on that day, that this man, Paul, saw Jesus. And Jesus turned his life upside down. Literally transformed him into a different man. So much so that later on, when he would write a letter to the church in Philippi, he would say, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had in this life, I I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and he means all things, not some things, all things. I've suffered the loss of them all, and I count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Jesus. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This man had been turned upside down and inside out by Jesus, and he would indeed, as you follow his life, lose all things for Jesus." He would lose it all for the gospel. Tradition would tell us that prior to meeting Jesus, Paul was not only one of the most zealous, not only one of the most successful religious leaders in Israel, but he was probably fairly well off. Coming from the town that he came from, the citizenship that he had, and the discipleship that he did under Gamaliel, he probably came from resources. But as his life was turned inside out for the sake of the gospel, nearly all of the resources that Paul would have had to his name have been scattered throughout the region to all of the fledgling churches that God is birthing through his ministry and the ministry of the disciples. Paul would spend his days in different cities continuing as a tent maker just to make enough money to be able to meet the needs that he had in that moment so that no one could put an offense before the gospel and begin to think that for any reason he was teaching to make money. He did what he had to do to get what he needed to be able to do what God had called him to do, but all that he had had prior was gone. Not only his resources, he suffered the loss of his health. Paul would grow increasingly weak and and frail, no doubt due in part to the numbers of beatings that he would endure, the shipwrecks he would endure, the imprisonments that he would endure, the hunger that he would endure, being stoned and left for dead, thinking you're dead, It'll do something to the body. Paul's health had begun to fail him. and Again, if tradition stands true, and again, it's church tradition through early church writers and early church fathers, tradition says that prior to having seen Christ and his life been transformed, Paul was a voting member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling religious council of the day. To be a voting member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So tradition says that prior to to his life being transformed by Christ, Paul lost his wife. But Paul did not pursue being remarried. He devoted himself in his life to the pursuit of the gospel being made known throughout the nations where God would send him. He gave himself entirely and utterly to the work of the gospel. But he would also lose his reputation Something so many of us couldn't fathom having to actually endure. In fact, in Acts chapter 22, those who were his contemporaries, those who were his peers, those who would look to him for his wisdom and his zeal, said of Paul, away with such a fellow from the earth, he shouldn't be allowed to live. Yet Paul would say, if in this world only, I had hope, listen, I would be of the most pitiable men on earth. But I've lost all of these things for the sake of having Jesus. And so now, when he, he's writing this letter to Timothy, he's grown old. His body is failing him. And I promise you, your body is going to fail you. Men, you can have all the hair transplants you want in the work. You can take all the shots to get rid of whatever. It it ain't going to work. Your body is going to fail you. And there's Paul in this prison, having gotten old, his body failing him. And the friends and the people who have been with him, people who owed their very conversion to Paul's ministry, to Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel, for Paul's commitment for them to hear the name of Jesus. And they've abandoned him. And he's left alone. And it's amazing to think how quickly things change. Because only a handful of years before this, when he's writing this letter alone, in prison, in chains, awaiting his execution, it wasn't but five to maybe eight years, scholars say before, that he was imprisoned and everybody was right there with him. Everybody was loving Paul. And everything changed like that. Look down at your Bibles if you've got them open to Acts 21. Let me take you to this journey. Paul had set his face on this last missionary journey to go to Jerusalem where he hoped that the gospel would be heard and received well by his fellow countrymen. That was foremost on Paul's heart, that the Israelites would come to have faith in the Messiah That they would see the glory of God in the person, the work of Jesus that was on Paul's heart. And so he was headed to Jerusalem, hoping for the gospel to be well received. But he was also taking with him to the church in Jerusalem that was undergoing a severe famine. He was taking a collection that he had gathered from the Gentile churches on his journey for the church in Jerusalem. And Paul knew that when he got there, whenever this journey ended, it, it stood to not go well for him once he gets to Jerusalem. In fact, on the way there, you'll see in verse 4 of chapter 21, they stopped in Tyre, and the Spirit, speaking through the disciples there, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go, Paul. As they continued on in their journey, they stop in Caesarea. You can see in verse 11, they stop in Philip's house in Caesarea. And this prophet named Agabus, not Agatha from WandaVision, but Agabus, Shows up at Philip's house. And look at verse 11. This prophet took Paul's belt. I was telling the first service, that's what I want to see in heaven. How do you take a man's belt? Like this guy just shows up and takes Paul's belt. Like Paul's going to let him have it. It's the craziest thing. He takes Paul's belt and he binds his own hands and his own feet. And he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews in Jerusalem would bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. Luke says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Don't do it, man. It's not going to go well. But then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm, listen, I can't get it. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die there for the name of Jesus. Period utterly changed, inside out. And since he wouldn't be persuaded, because you know they tried, they ceased, and they said, let the will of the Lord be done. And so they go to Jerusalem, and he knows it's not going to go well. And one of the reasons he knows it's not going to go well is because the the leaders that were there in Jerusalem were telling people throughout the city and in the temples and in the synagogues that Paul has been teaching Israelites and Gentiles throughout the region to ignore the law of God and traditions of God. That's what they're saying about Paul. You can look at it there in Acts chapter 22, or actually 21, sorry. Verse 21, they said, you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So the brothers there in Jerusalem tell Paul, hey, so as to not be overly offensive to them, to try to win their ears, go through the purification rituals of the customs, which Paul was happy to do. Paul was not doing what they were accusing him of. In fact, they had four disciples there who had taken vows, and he said, why don't you pay their blessing vows, pay the, the cost, the offerings for their vows for them, then everyone will see that you're not denying the law of God in our traditions. And so Paul does it. So the gospel will be heard, and it says there though in verse 27, before the seven days were up, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him. I told the earlier service if you come from a charismatic background, this is not laying hands on to pray. This is as the young folks say, throwing hands. This isn't laying hands. This is throwing hands. This is anger. They laid hands on him. And they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone against the people and the law and the place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple. For they had seen him with Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city earlier. And they supposed that he brought him into the temple. And look at verse 30. All the city was stirred up. And the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and the gates were shut and they were seeking to kill him. Not like we're going to kill you. They started beating the man. It got so crazy that word got back, you can keep reading, to the tribune. The tribune sent a group of soldiers down there and it wasn't until the soldiers got there, it says, that they saw the tribune and the soldiers and they stopped beating Paul. Verse 32. How long does it take for word to get back to the tribune, for tribune to get soldiers, for soldiers to get to Paul getting beat? He was getting stomped for a while, beaten by his own people. And when the soldiers get there, they break up the fight, but they chain Paul up, bloodied and beaten. They chain him up, they tie him up. But the violence doesn't stop. Verse 35 when they came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers. Because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob and the people followed crying away with him. But here's the thing. He's been getting beat on by a bunch of people. Bound by soldiers. So violent is this area. They had to pick him up and carry him. Just to get him away from the crowd. And in the moment he says, hold up. Can I talk to everybody? Seriously. Can I have a word with the crowd? And, And when Paul opens his mouth and they give him permission. He stands on the steps in verse 40 and motions with his hand to the people and there was a great hush and he addressed them in Hebrew and he didn't say, here are the things I have against you. It wasn't a festivist speech. It was the most epic testimony. Somebody got that. I appreciate that. It was the most epic testimony of the gospel and Acts chapter 22, you can read it, and they were all captivated. They were all hanging on every word Paul said until he got to verse 21 <laughs> when he said that God had sent him to the Gentiles. Up to this, it says in verse 22, they listened, but then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, he shouldn't be allowed to live and they got violent again. So you know what happened? Tribune, trying to figure out why they're so mad at Paul, they say, this man needs to be examined by flogging. He's been beaten to a bloody pulp, and in order to figure out why everybody's so mad at him, they say, we're going to tie him up and flog him. And maybe while we do that, he'll tell us the truth of why they're all so angry. It's crazy. And as he's tied up, and they're getting ready to Beat with the first lash, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship because that citizenship buys him a different process of justice. And so they refrain from that flogging. But the very next day, again, in an attempt to try to figure out what's going on and get to the bottom of it, the Romans arranged for him to meet with the high council, the Sanhedrin. And this is the day after. If you've ever seen somebody in a bad car wreck the day after or... God forbid you've ever seen somebody who's gone through a significant violent altercation the day after. They don't look great. He is swollen, bloodied, beaten to a pulp, and they bring him in front of the high council. And he's standing there. In chapter 23, verse 1, he says, he looks straight at the Sanhedrin and said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And in that council, you can think about it being divided theologically into the the conservative and the liberals, right? This isn't a new thing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees comprised the high council, and Paul recognized the Pharisees in the room, and he began to appeal to his belief in the resurrection, of which the Pharisees could say, well, wait a minute, he might not be wrong, but the Sadducees got really mad, so all of a sudden they erupted again. These guys had short fuses, And verse 10 says, When the dissension became so violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back to the the barracks. How do you think he would feel? These are his own people. They've been beating him to a pulp. If I was ever going to feel dejected, that would be it. And in chapter 23, verse 11 the following night, Luke records that the Lord stood by Paul. The Lord stood by Paul. Now, Paul had had an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Couldn't really see anything, but it changed him. He had had an encounter with God in the temple, but now the Lord is still standing next to Paul. And what does he say? Courage. Fifth time, courage. For you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And how do you think Paul felt? I'm sure he was sore, but if he needed anything, it wasn't an ice pack, he he needed courage. Because as the story goes on in chapter 27, he's gonna set sail for Rome. And it's gonna be a hard journey. They're gonna get shipwrecked on the island of Malta. He's gonna be there for three months. He's gonna get bitten by a viper while he's there. But they're gonna make it. And in chapter 28, the last chapter in the book of Acts, Paul is being brought into the city of Rome as a prisoner. Bound in chains as a prisoner. But as you begin to read, you'll see in chapter 28, the disciples of Jesus began to come to Rome to see Paul as he was making his way to the city. So though he was being brought into the city as a prisoner, he wasn't alone. People were coming from as far as 50 miles away to be with him in his imprisonment. And it was there, Luke tells us, in chapter 28, verse 30, that he lived for two years, house arrest, at his own expense, and welcomed everybody who came, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, with courage. Imprisoned, but not alone. People came from everywhere to be with Paul. But times have changed, right? After two years, he'd be released from house arrest, and the scholars say it was about five, maybe seven, just depends, years later, that a great fire would break out in Rome. It would destroy 10 of the 14 districts in Rome. And the prevailing rumor as to the source of the fire was that Nero said it himself because he wanted to rebuild Rome the way he wanted it to be. But the people didn't like that very much. That's not a, a good look for the emperor. So he needed a scapegoat. And in a couple of the districts that weren't destroyed completely by fire, those were the districts where the Christians lived. So Nero pinned it on the church. He pinned it on the Christians. And Roman historians tell us that Nero fastened the guilt and began to inflict the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. This is where you get the stories of Nero putting uh, animal skins on Christians and dripping blood on them and sending them out into the arenas with wild animals. Nero taking Christians and putting them on stakes and dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire outside of his palace as candles. This is what they're talking about. And Paul, having the reputation that he had, was rearrested. This was the one in Acts chapter 24, verse 5, that people said was a plague who stirs up riots among the Jews and throughout the whole world as the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. An easy target. He's rearrested. And he's now in prison, in that Mamertine prison, the house of darkness, they would call it. Five, six years later, at my first offense, he said in chapter 4, verse 16, no one came to stand by me. They were coming from 50 miles away last time. They wouldn't leave him alone. This is Paul. And now here he is, way too radioactive for most Way too dangerous to be associated with for most. And he's all alone. No one stood by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Remember that? Now, what he says next is amazing. But, verse 17, we skipped it last week. The Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me. I don't think it was exactly like what happened last time. But Paul knew that Jesus had said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what the writer of Hebrews, whether you think it's Paul or not, would later say, so we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? All may forsake me and abandon me, but I've come to know in whom I have believed, remember? And he won't abandon me. And so Paul says, he stood by me, and he strengthened me. Like jumper cables to the soul. That's all the image I could get. You ever had a dead battery in your car? If Paul's battery was ever dead, it was here. I mean, if he was ever feeling out, just done, it had to be here. But he strengthened me. Courage. Courage so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the gentiles might hear it where does that kind of confidence and assurance and the presence and the strengthening of the lord come from where does it come from how is it cultivated How is this kind of courage and perseverance with joy that we see in Paul, in the worst of circumstances, actually grow in our hearts and lives? Well, the last little bit of time we have, I'm going to show you two places that Paul mentions. These random scattered farewells that he has at the end of the letter that we read last week that seem like leftovers. There's two things he says that help us remember how this kind of courage is grown in our hearts. Because the reality of it is, so much of this letter is meant to stoke this kind of gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded courage in Timothy's heart and in the hearts of the church. Because they need it just as much as we do now. Because if there's any crisis that we face, it's a crisis of courage. There's one writer who said, we don't face a, a, a crisis of a lack of knowledge, we face a crisis of a lack of nerve. And it doesn't mean that you can't be fearful. It doesn't mean you won't be fearless, but it means to have courage is to know how to face your fear and keep walking towards the voice that calls you home. Two ways and means that God uses to cultivate courage that we see in Paul and we want in our own life. First one's in verse 13, chapter four. When you come, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books, and above all, the parchments. His death is imminent. He knows it. There's no walking away from this one. It could happen at any moment. Bring me the books. Most scholars would agree that he's talking about the Greek Old Testament. Bring me the word. And above all, the parchments. Again, scholars think that these parchments are probably Paul's own writings, his own thoughts. There may be portions of letters that he wants to write. There may be the teachings of Jesus that he has written down, the oral teachings that Luke and others have, have been telling him from eyewitnesses. It may be portions of his thoughts on different doctrines and different things. Bring them to me. Yes, I need a coat. That's another sermon for another time. But I need the word. The kind of courage to persevere with joy and the kind of confidence and the assurance of God's presence and power comes to us as we're marinated in God's word, period. That's it. Some of you might be familiar with William Tyndale. Tyndale was the, the one credited with translating the Bible into English. And do you know what Tyndale got for that? Because you can have that thing in your hands right there. Tyndale was tried found guilty, and sentenced to death by fire. He would be burned alive. And as he was awaiting his execution, he wrote, similarly like Paul, to those who were holding him captive, and he said, I entreat you that by the Lord Jesus, if I may remain here for the winter, would you please beg the commissary to be so kind as to send me from the things that are mine, <laughs> that are, actually have, a warmer cap. I feel the cold painfully in my head. A warmer coat because the one I have is very thin. The commissary has a woolen shirt of mine if he'll just send it. But most of all, please send my Hebrew Bible, my grammar and vocabulary that I may spend my time in the most blessed of pursuits. I need God's word. I need to see Jesus. Friends, closeness to death, as we see in Paul, as we see in Tyndale, closeness to death doesn't remove the necessity of continuing to feed on the bread of life. You see it in Paul, you see it in Tyndale, you see it in the saints of old. Because it's in God's word that we continue to see and to know and to enjoy Jesus and the promises of God. It's there we're reminded that God has promised to keep those who are his, to not forsake us, to not let anything come between us and his love. It's where he's reminded us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's where he reminds us that he's promised to conform us into the image of his son. He promises that he'll not let us fall into any temptation for which he hasn't provided a way of escape. He promises out of love to occasionally discipline us as children that he loves. He promises most that a day is coming when he will come to claim his people. And on that day, all the tears, all the pain, all of it is gone. And you get to be with him forever. The problem isn't that God hasn't made any promises to his people or that he doesn't keep his promises. The, The problem is generally that we're not really that interested in them or we don't believe them. As one writer says, we find ourselves not really enraptured by the promises of God because we still love the world too much like Demas. And that love that we talked about so much last week, what it does is it creates a fear in our hearts. We fear losing something that we've begun to grasp too tightly to, our reputation, our well-being, our particular way of life, maybe even life itself. And that fear born out of this inordinate love for the world is what's behind so much of our lack of confidence and trust and belief in the promises of God and obedience to his ways. Bring me the word. I need to continue to see the one in whom I have believed because it's his promises that cultivate in us the courage that we need. Because as we see him, as he's revealed himself to us, and we come to know in whom we have believed, our confidence in his character grows. And it's this confidence and this love for him that pushes out that wrong, inordinate love for the world and cultivates the courage that we need. Courage to actually forgive those who have hurt us. Courage to show mercy to those who have harmed us courage like Paul, and all the abandonment, and all the betrayal, and all the desertion, let it not be held against them. I've deserved so much worse from you, Lord. The grace that I've received from you, you have the courage to show to others. Courage to be generous with your time and your resources, because you know the one in whom you have believed, who has promised to never leave you or forsake you or always provide everything you need. Courage should take this good news of his gospel to the hardest of nations and the hardest of neighborhoods because you know that he's promised that as you do, his sheep will hear his voice. And that nothing, no matter how hard, no matter how devastating it may be for you now, nothing can separate you from his love. It's in this word where we see Him and come to know Him, that by the work of His Spirit, this kind of courage is cultivated in us. And it's not only that, it's one last thing. It's not just the courage that's cultivated by the Word. It's a confidence in God's Word that gets stoked in our hearts by good friends. You see it all through the end of the letter. Paul has reminded us that God has ordained that we run our race in the company of fellow runners, people to be grateful for. You only have to read the ends of Paul's letters to see how many people he would publicly mention his gratitude for and greet them and give them thanks and let them know how God had used them in his own journey. Paul was never alone in ministry by choice. He would be abandoned, he would be deserted, he would be alone, yes, but not by choice. Even when people had hurt him, even when people had left him, Paul, we see it in the last letter, will continue to pour himself out for them. He would not let himself become jaded or cynical. He kept loving. And I love it when you think about it together. Verse 11 where Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. When you think about these two things, the courage being cultivated through God's word as we see him and enjoy him and our confidence in his character begins to grow, and that courage in God's word being stoked by faithful friends who are constantly pointing us back to this word and this Savior and this Jesus here in verse 11. Do you know what you have? When you've got Paul and Timothy and Mark all together with Luke in the same place with the books and the parchments? You've got half the gospel writers in one room, Mark and Luke, and you've got the authors of over half the New Testament in Luke and Paul in the same place with the books and the parchments. Do you not think there's some gospel courage being stoked in that conversation? Friends, when you've got God's word and God's people together, you get courage and assurance to persevere, period. It's one reason why I believe Paul could say that the Lord stood by him and strengthened him and he was rescued from the lion's mouth. In verse 18, he was confident that the Lord will rescue him from every evil deed and bring him safely into the heavenly kingdom. I honestly believe that when Paul says that he was rescued from the lion's mouth, And that he'll be rescued from every evil work. He doesn't mean that he's going to escape death. He knows that's a certainty. That's, That's a given. What he means is that he has confidence and assurance that God is going to save him from unbelief. Save him from being like Demas. Save him from cowardice. Save him from throwing it all away for just a few more years of freedom and comfort. Just say what we want to hear, Paul. You don't have to sit here anymore. Just say what we want to hear, Paul, and we're not going to take your head. What's the thing that could have kept him from entering that heavenly kingdom, so to speak? It was by losing his confidence and his faith in the one who saved him. Only unbelief would threaten that. Satan, Peter said, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's the one who threatens to destroy Christians by attacking their faith. Paul said, I have the Lord by my side. An assurance that comes from knowing him as he's revealed himself to us in his word. A knowledge that has been stoked and encouraged by faithful friends. To have him is to have him rescuing you from the lion's mouth and to bring you safely into his kingdom. There's nothing else that could ever bring you to say what Paul would say other than to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. (laughs) Because there's no one else imaginable close to being worthy for that. And so Paul, in that moment, would get to the place where... He would be able to say with joy and confidence, with all courage, the Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. Grace be with you. And that's not just niceties to end a letter. That's full sincerity. Timothy, the church in Ephesus, the church in Richmond, Virginia in 2021, you need the Lord's presence just like Paul did. You need the joy of God's grace. Bring me that word. Come with me. Help me see him. Help me enjoy him. Because that, friends, is the fuel that allows you to finish well. And finish well without fear. That is the joy that we remember And we celebrate in times like this when, as a people, we receive communion together. As we come forward and we take one of these little cups over here and we go back to your seat and we go through the labor of peeling back the little foil to get the bread and peel back the other foil to get the juice, we're we're doing that as a proclamation of confidence that God, through grace and faith in His Son, has united us to Jesus. And because of that, we have nothing else to fear. The sting of death itself is gone. The pressure weighing down on our souls to come up with some kind of case that we would plead before God for our innocence, the pressure's gone. God has exposed the nature of our sinfulness in the crucifixion of His Son, And we've agreed with that verdict through our repentance and our faith in Christ as the substitutionary sacrifice in our place. This is what we're proclaiming as we receive these elements together. At the cross, God exposed our guilt and he delivered his verdict. In that way, friends, the last day that Paul's spoken about in this letter has already happened for us. It already happened outside of Jerusalem on that hill on the cross. And this morning, for those who have believed upon Jesus, repented of their sins, and by the grace of God have put your faith, however feebly it may feel to you, in Christ as your king and as your savior, this morning we proclaim our confidence in that as we receive communion together. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a moment of reflection, and then you'll be invited to come forward. And I pray for you that God would do for you what I feel like he's going to do for me. The voice of Paul will ring daily in your head. Stay sober-minded, endure hardship, and continue the work of preaching the gospel. Fulfill your ministry, and you can do it with all joy and all courage because of Christ. Let me pray, and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning for your words to us through Paul, alone in that prison, that even in his words we hear the confidence that though people may fail us, though we may fail one another, you never fail us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You are with us. You are for us. What is better than that? Lord, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do that work that only you could do, that you would capture our hearts for your glory you would capture our hearts with a delight in who you are in such a way that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace let us finish well like paul let us have that confession of having run well fueled by your grace fueled by the sight of your son in your word and the work of your spirit. We ask that you would do that in our hearts for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, June 27th at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.